This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Key DeLary, Austin, Texas, www.chloroplastic.com. A Girl of the Limberlost by Jean Stratton Porter. Chapter 13 wherein Mother Love is bestowed on Elnora, and she finds an assistant in moth-hunting. Elnora awoke at dawn, and lay gazing around the unfamiliar room. She noticed that every vestige of masculine attire and belongings were gone, and knew, without any explanation, what that meant. For some reason, every tangible evidence of her father was banished, and she was at last to be allowed to take his place. She turned to look at her mother. Mrs. Comstock's face was white and haggard, but on it rested an expression of profound peace Elnora never before had seen. As she studied the features on the pillow beside her, the heart of the girl throbbed in tenderness. She realized as fully as anyone else could what her mother had suffered. Thoughts of the night brought shuddering fear. She softly slipped from the bed, went to her room, dressed, and entered the kitchen to attend the emperors and prepare breakfast. The pair had been left clinging to the piece of calico. The calico was there, and a few pieces of beautiful wing. A mouse had eaten the moths. "'Well, of all the horrible luck!' gasped Elnora. With the first thought of her mother, she caught up the remnants of the moths, burying them in the ashes of the stove. She took the bag to her room, hurriedly releasing its contents, but there was not another yellow one. Her mother had said some had been confined in the case in the Limberlost. There was still a hope that an emperor might be among them. She peeped at her mother, who still slept soundly. Elnora took a large piece of mosquito netting and ran to the swamp. Throwing it over the top of the case, she unlocked the door. She reeled, faint with distress. The living moths that had been confined there in their fluttering to escape tonight— and the mates they sought not only had wrecked the other specimens of the case, but torn themselves to fringes on the pins. A third of the rarest moths of the collection for the man of India were antennaless, legless, wingless, and often headless. Elnora sobbed aloud. "'This is so overwhelming,' she said at last. "'It is making a fatalist of me. I am beginning to think things happen as they are ordained from the beginning.' this plainly indicating that there is to be no college, at least this year, for me. My life is all mountaintop or cannon. I wish someone would lead me into a few days of green pastures. Last night I went to sleep on mother's arm, the moths all secured, love and college certainties. This morning I waked to find all my hopes wrecked. I simply don't dare let mother know that instead of helping me, she has ruined my collection." Everything is gone, unless the love lasts. That actually seemed true. I believe I will go see. The love remained. Indeed, in the overflow of the long-hardened, pent-up heart, the girl was almost suffocated with tempestuous caresses and generous offerings. Before the day was over, Elnora realized that she never had known her mother. The woman who now busily went through the cabin, her eyes bright, eager, alert, constantly planning, was a stranger. Her very face was different. 
while it did not seem possible that during one night the acid of twenty years could disappear from a voice and leave it sweet and pleasant. For the next few days, Elnora worked at mounting the moths her mother had taken. She had to go to the bird woman and tell about the disaster, but Mrs. Comstock was allowed to think that Elnora delivered the moths when she made the trip. If she had told her what actually happened, the chances were that Mrs. Comstock again would have taken possession of the Limberlost, hunting there until she replaced all the moths that had been destroyed. But Elnora knew from experience what it meant to collect such a list in pairs. It would require steady work for at least two summers to replace the lost moths. When she left the bird woman, she went to the president of the Onabasha schools and asked him to do all in his power to secure her a room in one of the ward buildings. The next morning the last moth was mounted, and the housework finished. Elnora said to her mother, "'If you don't mind, I believe I will go into the woods pasture beside Sleepy Snake Creek and see if I can catch some dragonflies or moths.' "'Wait until I get a knife and a pail and I will go along,' answered Mrs. Comstock. "'The dandelions are plenty tender for greens among the deep grasses, and I might just happen to see something myself. My eyes are pretty sharp.' "'I wish you could realize how young you are,' said Elnora. "'I know women in Onabasha who are ten years older than you, "'yet they look twenty years younger. "'So could you, if you would, dress your hair becomingly "'and wear appropriate clothes?' "'I think my hair puts me in the old woman class permanently,' "'said Mrs. Comstock. "'Well, it doesn't,' cried Elnora. "'There is a woman of twenty-eight, "'whose hair is white as yours from sick headaches.' But her face is young and beautiful. If your face would grow a little fuller, and those lines would go away, you'd be lovely. You little pig, laughed Mrs. Comstock. Anyone would think you would be satisfied with having a splinter new mother, without setting up a kick on her looks first thing, greedy. That is a good word, said Elnora. I admit the charge. I am greedy over every wasted year. I want you young, lovely, suitably dressed, and enjoying life like the other girls' mothers. Mrs. Comstock laughed softly as she pushed back her sunbonnet so that shrubs and bushes beside the way could be scanned closely. Elnora walked ahead with a case over her shoulder, a net in her hand. Her head was bare. The rolling collar of her lavender gingham dress was cut in a V at the throat. The sleeves only reached the elbows. Every few steps she paused— and examined the shrubbery carefully, while Mrs. Comstock was watching until her eyes ached, but there were no dandelions in the pail she carried. Early June was rioting in fresh grasses, bright flowers, bird songs, and gay winged creatures of air. Down the footpath the two went through the perfect morning, the love of God and all nature in their hearts. At last they reached the creek, following it toward the bridge. Here Mrs. Comstock found a large bed of tender dandelions, and stopped to fill her pail. Then she sat on the bank, picking over the greens, while she listened to the creek softly singing its June song. Elnora remained within calling distance, and was having good success. At last she crossed the creek, following it up to a bridge. There she began a careful examination of the undersides of the sleepers and flooring for cocoons. Mrs. Comstock could see her in the creek for several rods above. 
The mother sat beating the long green leaves across her hand, carefully picking out the white buds, because Elnora liked them, when a splash up the creek attracted her attention. Around the bend came a man. He was bareheaded, dressed in a white sweater, and waders which reached his waist. He walked on the bank, only entering the water when forced. He had a queer basket strapped on his hip, and with a small rod he sent a long line spinning before him down the creek, deftly manipulating with it a little floating object. He was closer Elnora than her mother, but Mrs. Comstock thought possibly by hurrying she could remain unseen and yet warn the girl that a stranger was coming. As she approached the bridge, she caught a sapling and leaned over the water to call Elnora. With her lips parted to speak, she hesitated a second to watch the sort of insect that flashed past on the water, when a splash from the man attracted the girl. She was under the bridge, one knee planted in the embankment and a foot braced to support her. Her hair was tussled by wind and bushes, her face flushed, and she lifted her arms above her head, working to loosen a cocoon she had found. The call Mrs. Comstock had intended to utter never found voice, for Zelnora looked down at the sound. "'Possibly I could get that for you,' suggested the man. Mrs. Comstock drew back. He was a young man with a wonderfully attractive face, although it was too white for robust health, broad shoulders, and slender, upright frame. "'Oh, I do hope you can,' answered Elnora. "'It's quite a find. It's one of those lovely pale red cocoons described in the books. I suspect it comes from having been in a dark place and screened from the weather.' "'Is that so?' cried the man. "'Wait a minute. I've never seen one. I suppose it's a cacropia from the location.' "'Of course,' said Elnora. "'It's so cool here the moth hasn't emerged. The cocoon is a big baggy one.' and it is as red as foxtail. "'What luck!' he cried. "'Are you making a collection?' He reeled in his line, laid his rod across a bush, and climbed the embankment to Elnora's side, produced a knife, and began the work of whittling a deep groove around the cocoon. "'Yes, I paid my way through the high school in Onabasha with them. Now I am starting a collection, which means college.' "'Onabasha!' said the man. That is where I am visiting. Possibly you know my people. Dr. Ammons? The doctor is my uncle. My home is in Chicago. I've been having typhoid fever, something fierce, in the hospital six weeks. Didn't gain strength right, so Uncle Doc sent for me. I'm to live out of doors all summer and exercise until I get in condition again. Do you know my uncle? Yes, he is Aunt Margaret's doctor. "'and he would be ours, only we are never ill.' "'Well, you look it,' said the man, appraising Elnora at a glance. "'Strangers always mention it,' sighed Elnora. "'I wonder how it would seem to be a pale, languid lady and ride in a carriage.' "'Ask me,' laughed the man. "'It feels like the Dickens. I'm so proud of my feet. It's quite a trick to stand on them now.' I have to keep out of the water all I can and stop to baby every half mile. But with interesting outdoor work, I'll be myself in a week. Do you call that work? Elnora indicated the creek. I do indeed. Nearly three miles, banks too soft to brag on, and never a strike. 
Wouldn't you call that hard labor? Yes, laughed Alnora. Work at which you might kill yourself and never get a fish. Did anyone tell you there were trout in Sleepy Snake Creek? Uncle said I could try. Oh, you can, said Elnora. You can try no end, but you'll never get a trout. This is too far south and too warm for them. If you sit on the bank and use worms, you might catch some perch or catfish. But that isn't exercise. Well, if you only want exercise, go right on fishing. You will have a creel full of invisible results every night. I object, said the man emphatically. He stopped work again and studied Elnora. Even the watching mother could not blame him. In the shade of the bridge, Elnora's bright head and her lavender dress made a picture worthy of much contemplation. I object, repeated the man. When I work, I want to see results. I'd rather exercise sawing wood, making one pile grow little and the other big, than to cast all day and catch nothing because there is not a fish to take. Work for work's sake doesn't appeal to me. He digged the groove around the cocoon with skilled hand. Now there is some fun in this, he said. It's going to be a fair job to cut it out, but when it comes, it is not only beautiful, but worth a price. It will help you on your way. I think I'll put up my rod and hunt moths. That would be something like. Don't you want to help? Elnora parried the question. Have you ever hunted moths, Mr. Ammon? Enough to know the ropes in taking them, and to distinguish the commonest ones. I go wild on catacole. There is too many of them, all too much alike for Philip, but I know all these fellows. One flew into my room when I was about ten years old, and we thought it a miracle. None of us ever had seen one, so we took it over to the museum to Dr. Dorsey. He said they were common enough, but we didn't see them because they flew at night. He showed me the museum collection, and I was so interested I took mine back home and started to hunt them. Every year after we went to our cottage a month earlier, so I could find them, and all my family helped, I stuck to it until I went to college. Then, keeping the little moths out of the big ones was too much for the matter. So father advised that I donate mine to the museum. He bought a fine case for them with my name on it, which constitutes my sole contribution to science. I know enough to help you all right. Aren't you going north this year? All depends on how this fever leaves me. Uncle says the nights are too cold and the day is too hot there for me. He thinks I had better stay in an even temperature until I am strong again. I'm going to stick pretty close to him until I know I am. I wouldn't admit it to anyone at home, but I was almost gone. I don't believe anything can eat up nerve much faster than the burning of a slow fever. No, thanks. I have enough. I stay with Uncle Doc, so if I feel it coming again, he can do something quickly. I don't blame you, said Elnora. I never have been sick, but it must be dreadful. I am afraid you are tiring yourself over that. Let me take the knife a while. Oh, it isn't so bad as that. I wouldn't be waiting creeks if it were. I only need a few more days to get steady on my feet again. I'll soon have this out. It is kind of you to get it, said Elnora. I should have had to peel it, which would spoil the cocoon for a specimen and ruin the moth. You haven't said yet whether I may help you while I'm here. Elnora hesitated. 
You better say yes, he persisted. It would be a real kindness. It would keep me outdoors all day and give an incentive to work. I'm good at it. I'll show you if I am not in a week or so. I can sugar, manipulate lights and mirrors, and all the expert methods. I'll wager moths are numerous in the old swamp over there. They are, said Elnora. Most I have I took there. A few nights ago my mother caught a number, but we don't dare go alone. All the more reason why you need me. Where do you live? I can't get an answer from you. I'll go tell your mother who I am and ask her if I may help you. I warn you, young lady, I have a very effective way with mothers. They almost never turn me down. Then it's probable you will have a new experience when you meet mine, said Elnora. She never was known to do what anyone expected she surely would. The cocoon came loose. Philip Ammon stepped down the embankment, turning to offer his hand to Elnora. She ran down as she would have done alone, and taking the cocoon, turned it in for in to learn if the imago it contained were alive. Then Ammon took back the cocoon to smooth the edges. Mrs. Comstock gave them one long look as they stood there, and returned to her dandelions. While she worked, she paused occasionally, listening intently. Presently they came down the creek, the man carrying the cocoon as if it were a jewel, while Elnora made her way along the bank, taking a lesson in casting. Her face was flushed with excitement, her eyes shining, the bushes taking liberties with her hair. For a picture of perfect loveliness, she scarcely could have been surpassed, and the eyes of Philip Ammon seemed to be in working order. "'Mother!' called Elnora. There was an undulant, caressing sweetness in the girl's voice, as she sung out the call in perfect confidence that it would bring a loving answer, that struck deep in Mrs. Comstock's heart. She never had heard that word so pronounced before, and a lump arose in her throat. "'Here!' she answered, still cleaning dandelions. "'Mother, this is Mr. Philip Ammon of Chicago.' said Elnora. He has been ill, and he is staying with Dr. Ammon and Onabasha. He came down the creek fishing and cut this cocoon from under the bridge for me. He feels that it would be better to hunt moths than to fish until he is well. What do you think about it? Philip Ammon extended his hand. I am glad to know you, he said. You may take the handshaking for granted, replied Mrs. Comstock. Dandelions have a way of making fingers sticky, and I like to know a man before I take his hand, anyway. That introduction seems mighty comprehensive on your part, but it still leaves me unclassified. My name is Comstock. Philip Ammon bowed. I am sorry to hear you have been sick, said Mrs. Comstock, but if people will live where they have such vile water as they do in Chicago, I don't see what else they are to expect. Philip studied her intently. "'I am sure I didn't have a fever on purpose,' he said. "'You do seem a little wobbly on your legs,' she observed. "'Maybe you had better sit and rest while I finish these greens. "'It's late for the genuine article, but in the shade, among long grass, they are still tender.' "'May I have a leaf?' he asked, reaching for one as he sat on the bank, "'looking from the little creek at his feet, away through the dim cool spaces of the June forest on the opposite side.' He drew a deep breath. Glory, but this is good after almost two months inside hospital walls. 
He stretched on the grass and lay gazing up at the leaves, occasionally asking the interpretation of a bird note or the origin of an unfamiliar forest voice. Elnora began helping with the dandelions. "'Another, please,' said the young man, holding out his hand. "'Do you suppose this is the kind of grass Nebuchadnezzar ate?' Elnora asked, giving the leaf. "'He knew a good thing if it is.' "'Oh, you should taste dandelions boiled with bacon and served with mother's cornbread.' "'Don't. My appetite is twice my size now. While it is. How far is it to Onabasha, shortest cut?' Three miles.' The man lay in perfect content, nibbling leaves. "'This surely is a treat,' he said. "'No wonder you find good hunting here. There seems to be foliage for almost every kind of caterpillar. But I suppose you have to exchange for northern species and Pacific coast kinds.' "'Yes, and everyone wants regalis in trade. I never saw the like. They consider a cacropia or a polyphemus an insult, and a luna is barely acceptable.' "'What authorities have you?' "'Elnora began to name textbooks, which started a discussion. "'Mrs. Comstock listened. "'She cleaned dandelions with greater deliberation "'than they ever before were examined. "'In reality, she was taking stock of the young man's "'long, well-proportioned frame, his strong hands, "'his smooth, fine-textured skin, his thick shock of dark hair, "'and making mental notes of his simple, manly speech "'and the fact that he evidently did know much about moths.' It pleased her to think that if he had been a neighbor boy who had lain beside her every day of his life while she worked, he could have been no more at home. She liked the things he said, but she was proud that Elnora had a ready answer which always seemed appropriate. At last Mrs. Comstock finished the greens. "'You are three miles from the city and less than a mile from where we live,' she said. "'If you will tell me what you dare eat,' I suspect you'd best go home with us and rest until the cool of the day before you start back. Probably someone that you can ride in with will be passing before evening. That is mighty kind of you, said Philip. I think I will. It doesn't matter so much what I eat. The point is that I must be moderate. I am hungry all the time. Then we will go, said Mrs. Comstock, and we will not allow you to make yourself sick with us. Philip Ammon arose, picking up the pail of greens and his fishing rod. He stood waiting. Elnora led the way. Mrs. Comstock motioned Philip to follow, and she walked in the rear. The girl carried the cocoon and the box of moths she had taken, searching every step for more. The young man frequently set down his load to join in the pursuit of a dragonfly or moth, while Mrs. Comstock watched the proceedings with sharp eyes. Every time Philip picked up the pail of greens, she struggled to suppress a smile. Elnora proceeded slowly, chattering about everything beside the trail. Philip was interested in all the objects she pointed out, noticing several things which escaped her. He carried the greens as casually when they took a shortcut down the roadway as on the trail. When Elnora turned toward the gate of her home, Philip Ammon stopped, took a long look at the big-hued log cabin, the vines which clambered over it, the flower garden ablaze with beds of bright bloom interspersed with strawberries and tomatoes, the trees of the forest rising north and west like a green wall, and exclaimed, How beautiful! 
Mrs. Comstock was pleased. If you think that, she said, perhaps you will understand how, in all this present-day rush to be modern, I have preferred to remain as I began. My husband and I took up this land, and enough trees to build the cabin, stable, and outbuildings are nearly all we ever cut. Of course, if he had lived, I supposed we should have kept up with our neighbors. I hear considerable about the value of the land, the trees which are on it, and the oil which is supposed to be under it, but as yet I haven't brought myself to change anything. So we stand for one of the few remaining homes of first settlers in this region. Come in. You're very welcome to what we have. Mrs. Comstock stepped forward and took the lead. She had a bowl of soft water and a pair of boots to offer for the heavy waiters, for outer comfort, a glass of cold buttermilk, and a bench on which to rest in the circular arbor until dinner was ready. Philip Ammon splashed in the water. He followed to the stable and exchanged boots there. He was ravenous for the buttermilk, and when he stretched on the bench in the arbor, the flickering patches of sunlight so tantalized his tired eyes, while the bees made such splendid music, he was soon sound asleep. When Elnora and her mother came out with a table, they stood a short time looking at him. It is probable Mrs. Comstock voiced a united thought when she said, "'What a refined, decent-looking young man! How proud his mother must be of him! We must be careful what we let him eat.' Then they returned to the kitchen where Mrs. Comstock proceeded to be careful. She broiled ham of her own sugar-curing, creamed potatoes, served asparagus on toast, and made a delicious strawberry shortcake. As she cooked dandelions with bacon, she feared to serve them to him, so she made an excuse that it took too long to prepare them, blanched some, and made a salad. When everything was ready, she touched Philip's sleeve. "'Best have something to eat, lad, before you get too hungry,' she said. "'Please hurry,' he begged laughingly, as he held a plate toward her to be filled. "'I thought I had enough self-restraint to start out alone, but I see I was mistaken.' If you would allow me just now, I am afraid I should start a fever again. I never did smell food so good as this. It's mighty kind of you to take me in. I hope I will be man enough in a few days to do something worthwhile in return. Spots of sunshine fell on the white cloth and blue china. The bees and an occasional stray butterfly came searching for food. A rose-breasted grosbeak, released from a three-hour siege of brooding, while his independent mate took her bath and recreation— mounted the top branch of a maple in the west woods, from which he serenaded the dinner-party with a joyful chorus in celebration of his freedom. Philip's eyes strayed to the beautiful cabin, to the mixture of flowers and vegetables stretching down to the road, and to the singing bird with his red-splotched breast of white, and he said, "'I can't realize now that I ever lay in ice-packs in a hospital. How I wish all the sick folks could come here to grow strong!' The grosbeaks sang on, and big turnus butterflies sailed through the arbor and poised over the table. Elnora held up a lump of sugar and the butterfly, clinging to her fingers, tasted daintily. With eager eyes and parted lips, the girl held steadily. When at last it wavered away, "'That made a picture,' said Philip. "'Ask me some other time how I lost my illusions concerning butterflies. I always thought of them in connection with sunshine, flower pollen, and fruit nectar.' "'until one sad day.' "'I know,' laughed Eldora. "'I've seen that, too, but it didn't destroy any illusion for me. 
I think quite as much of the butterflies as ever. Then they talked of flowers, moths, dragonflies, Indian relics, and all the natural wonders the swamp afforded, straying from those subjects to books and schoolwork. When they cleared the table, Philip assisted, carrying several trayloads to the kitchen. He and Elnora mounted the specimens, while Mrs. Comstock washed the dishes. Then she came out with a ruffle she was embroidering. "'I wonder if I did not see a picture of you in Onabasha last night,' Philip said to Elnora. "'Aunt Anna took me to call on Miss Brownlee. She was showing me her crowd. Of course it was you. But it didn't half do you justice, although it was the nearest human of any of them. Miss Brownlee is very fond of you. She said the finest things.' Then they talked of commencement, and at last Philip said he must go, or his friends would become anxious about him. Mrs. Comstock brought him a blue bowl of creamy milk and a plate of bread. She stopped a passing team and secured a ride to the city for him, as his exercise of the morning had been too violent, and he was forced to admit he was tired. "'May I come tomorrow afternoon and hunt moths a while?' he asked Mrs. Comstock as he arose. "'We will sugar a tree and put a light beside it, if I can get stuff to make the preparation. Possibly we can take some that way.' I always enjoy moth hunting. I'd like to help Miss Elnora, and it would be a charity to me. I've got to remain outdoors some place, and I'm quite sure I'd get well faster here than anywhere else. Please say I may come. I have no objections, if Elnora really would like help, said Mrs. Comstock. In her heart she wished he would not come. She wanted her newly found treasure all to herself, for a time at least. But Elnora's were eager, shining eyes. She thought it would be splendid to have help, and great fun to try book methods for taking moths, so it was arranged. As Philip rode away, Mrs. Comstock's eyes followed him. "'What a nice young man,' she said. "'He seems fine,' agreed Elnora. "'He comes of a good family, too. I've often heard of his father. He is a great lawyer.' I am glad he likes it here. I need help. Possibly. Possibly what? We can find many moths. What did he mean about the butterflies? That he always had connected them with sunshine, flowers, and fruits, and thought of them as the most exquisite of creations. Then one day he found some clustering thickly over carrion. Come to think of it, I have seen butterflies. So had he, laughed Elnora, and that is what he meant. End of chapter 13